Welcome to the WebWell podcast, brought to you by Cascade Web Development. All right, welcome everyone back to the WebWell podcast. I'm joined here with host Ben McKinley, as well as our special guest, Bill Piersnick. Uh, welcome everyone. Good to be here. Simon. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for joining us today. Uh, I've been working with Bill going on a year now uh, with his new law firm, Macro Law. And um, I've been uh, watching Bill's journey uh, since the, the late 90s, early aughts from afar. Uh, we've met a couple times along the way through some mutual friends and really excited to dive a little bit deeper. But uh, thank you, Bill, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You bet. And so Bill's background um, includes uh, started working in some large law firms, starting his own uh, small law firm. Uh, I, my understanding is going in-house, perhaps, with a, a fast-growing tech startup in Portland, um, moving through a couple of different um, tech, tech companies in Portland and Silicon Valley, and more recently starting out his, his own law firm, yet again, Macro Law as well as having a, a startup in the uh, in the fitness and wellness business as a, a franchise owner. So lots of stuff to cover today. Uh, but Bill, typically what we like to do is, is start off by just inviting our guests to share a little bit about their story, their background, uh, and kind of what led them to, you know, their, their uh, professional journey. Yeah, sure. So uh, I grew up on the East Coast. I was born in Philadelphia, grew up about 30 miles outside of the city. Uh, brother, sister, mom, and dad, you know, typical suburban, you know, early 80s household watching Miami Vice and, you know, and Silver Spoons and the like. Um, my, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, so I went to college right outside of Philadelphia, a small little liberal arts school called Haverford College. And then uh, law school started in Philadelphia and then transferred to UCLA. And um uh, finished my law degree at UCLA. Uh, I had had a stint for a couple of years working with a professional sports agent. Thought that that th thought that that was what I wanted to do. Turned was not for me uh, for a number of reasons. Um, luckily, at the time, this was the late '90s. Um, everybody in Silicon Valley was kind of hiring, um, you know, anybody with a pulse. And so I had a lot of friends from uh, the uh, from law school who had taken jobs at some of the bigger firms in uh, law firms in Silicon Valley. I interviewed and got a couple offers. And so I joined a law firm there named uh, Cooley. It was called Cooley Godward at the time. It's now called Cooley. And that was, that's what kind of set me off. That was 99. And so, you know, we had, I think it was that year we had, we had represented the highest number of IPOs in the country. So if you think about like, you know, the internet boom, we were doing all that. We were doing all the, you know, ton of M&A. Um, it was a real fun, but crazy time, but a great way to start out for your career. Like you would work, you know, eight to six, you'd put in your, your, your dinner order, you go work out, you come back, you get your dinner, you work till nine, maybe have a beer with a friend, go home and wake up, rinse and repeat. Um, so uh, not a whole lot of free time, but an incredible way to kind of cut your teeth in the space. Wow. Wow. And so, yeah, it seems like a lot of times uh, you hear about folks starting off in, in various places and migrating to Silicon Valley. And in a way you did, but how did you find your way to Portland? Yeah. So I was at, at, at Cooley and my now ex-wife is a physician. Uh, so she matched her residency. She was at Stanford uh, for her internship and she was trying to match her re residency in radiology. And we were trying to figure out where to go. And this is, this is telling 
we didn't want to stay in the Bay Area then. This was like 2001 because we thought a house in Mountain View or Palo Alto priced at $700,000 was just crazy. So we're like, that's way too much money. We got to get out of here. So I, that was one of those one of those decisions I regret. But uh, we ended up deciding just to try out Portland. Had had visited here, really liked it. It really didn't have a network here. And we figured, well, our residency is four years. And, um, you know, if it doesn't work out, we can always pick up and move somewhere else. And, you know, this was 2002 and we moved in and, you know, we moved in here during the summer. And it was like, what are people talking about the rain? This is great. And uh, kind of, you know, got the bug uh, and just kind of felt lived, lived downtown and fell in love with the city and haven't left. Wow. And so for you, uh, did you stay with Cooley or did you, what, what did your path look like there? Yeah. So I left Cooley um, and started, uh, came up and worked at a firm up here called Stoll Reeves, which is uh, a big Oregon. Well, it's, it's uh, sort of geographic, it's a regional law firm, but it's HQ is in, is in, um, uh, Oregon, it's one of the bigger firms in, in, in the Pacific Northwest. And so I kind of came in with this pedigree of background working with tech startups in the Bay Area, as well as the, I worked with Cisco and eBay and Yahoo and a bunch of those companies back in the day. So I was able to bring a lot of that kind of um, sort of uh, know-how to Stoll Reeves and um, had an interesting practice there. Usually when you go into a law firm, you kind of specialize like, hey, you're doing corporate law or you're doing IP law or you're doing employment law. And I'd had this kind of great background working with all these startups and Stoll gave me the opportunity to say like, hey, instead of working in just one practice area, why don't you just work with startups generally? So I got this great experience in being able to work with startups and kind of do soup to nuts on the business side for them. And anytime I needed something, some specialty help, I had a big firm behind me to go uh, work with. Um, but I did that for four years and it was a lot of fun. And um, then I kind of got to a point where it was, uh, hey, you're going to be making the run for partner and I probably was going to get it. Um, but I was I kind of got to the point of I saw all these entrepreneurs, people, Ben, you know, Ben, people like you and, you know, all people that we know in general, you know, in the early 2000s kind of starting these companies. And I was thinking like, hey, I want to go do that. But I don't know anything about product whatsoever. But I know about law. And I had this kind of cadre of clients who followed me from the Bay Area up to Stoll and then ones that I had picked up it stole and my whole philosophy as well. If I leave, if I just do the math and I leave and I don't have the overhead of a big law firm with, you know, mahogany walls and, and, you know, a view of Mount of the mountains. And I just kind of operate like a startup. I can probably make some pretty, pretty good money. So I was really scared. Um, but kind of somebody told me one time, like the wall you're about to run through is just a paper wall. And uh, that kind of stuck with me. And so I stepped out and uh, started, of law firm called Alto Law Group uh, then, and uh, you know ran that for six years and grew it to with five or six attorneys and you know a bunch of startups who represented you know you throw back in the early two thousands like you know Eroy and 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 um, Urban Airship and Jive and Jama and Puppet and kind of you know you name the list of the uh, Jan Rain like the list of companies in the two thousands we weren't doing all their legal work but we were touching them in some ways and I think a lot of it was just the approach that we took was not just, hey, we're going to issue spot. It was like, hey, we're a startup too. We understand we have to get deals done. How can we quickly get things through the pipeline for you guys? And I think the founders we worked with really appreciated that. Yeah, that's great. I remember we, uh, after you had left Alto, we we met with uh, uh, one of the partners Gosh. there. Yeah. yeah, Josh. Seemed like you guys had a, a very strict hiring height requirement. You guys both are, are uh, yeah. He's, rather tall. Yep. yep. Yeah. He's 6'5", I'm 6'4". So yeah. yeah. We, we were twin towers. 
Yeah, exactly. But I, it, re it resonated with me as well. Um, it, it definitely was a, a cool message and a lot more refreshing than, than some of the, you know, walking into a, a place like Stoll where you're just small and scrappy and you're like, wait, what? I got to cover all, all this overhead. So uh, that, that's cool. So how did, how did you go from, uh, from being a, a partner there and deciding that you wanted to, to get a little closer to the action? Yeah. So it was, um, I have a little bit of a, you know, self-admitted FOMO all the time on things. It's sort of like, Hey, that I'm, what I'm doing is cool, but like, look what they're doing. And so Jive was one of my clients at the time and I became really good friends with the founders. Uh, and, uh, just, we represented them not in all their work, but a lot of their work as they just scaled. And, you know, for people who don't know, Jive was a company, you know, kind of in the was one of the first companies uh, to take a lot of the social social media concepts and bring them into enterprise software. So things are like blogs and wikis and collaboration and, and the like. And so Jive really took off during the 2000s and we were uh, early 2000s. We were fortunate enough to be a part of that. And in 2010, um, they were thinking about going public. And so they were thinking, well, it's time to hire a general counsel. And so they approached me and asked me if I wanted to throw my hat in the ring. Um, and at first I was like, yeah, sure. I'll interview. And then I was, uh, then kind of kept making it through the process and they kind of made me the offer and I had to make this decision. Well, I have this really profitable, really fun kind of, you know, services business going, but I also have this opportunity here. And that was kind of one of the first times where it was like, Hey, let's, it's not about the money. It's about the experience. It's about the growth. It's about the learning. And so um, we reached, I reached a deal with Josh, my partner, and kind of sold him the business and jumped in as the uh, chief legal officer of Jive uh, pre-IPO. Oh, very cool. Yeah, maybe that's something we could come back to on two points, actually. Both that that idea of being a, a partner in a law firm and then going in-house, that's always something I found interesting, as well as the notion of a service company. And, and again, I think maybe we can come back if we have some time on that. But that's that's always something I found fascinating as I look at, at product versus service, you know, Cascade mainly service. We did that brand live product experience. And uh, wow, what a what a different path that was indeed. But um, very cool. And, uh, gosh, Jive, like, a, uh, like, you know, as I mentioned before we started recording media, darling, lots of attention, they deserved it. They really helped, you know, create that, that, uh, excitement around the Portland tech scene. Um, do you have any fun stories about, about some of the, the action that you saw there or, or pivotal oh, moments? Yeah. Uh, there's a ton of them. Uh, it was the one thing I was just talking to someone yesterday who I worked with at Jive and, and, you know, we both, everybody's gone, it, Gone, gone their separate ways. But one of the things that people always kind of when whenever people get back together, everyone talks about, man, wasn't that a ride? That was crazy. It was intense. But what you realize is when you spend as much time on the front end as of hiring as Jive did, I mean, it was pretty brutal to get through almost any role at, to get into Jive. And that was I credit, you know, Matt and Bill and Dave Hirsch, uh, at the start, that's that's how they built the business to start was like, hey, this is our baby. And if you want to be a part of it, we're going to really make sure you want it and we're going to really vet you. So what that did was the people who were there, one, you had to really want to be there. But two, you had like just amazing people. Just if you look at kind of the, you know, and there's a lot of companies that are like this, but if you look at kind of the DNA that Jive has put out into the world, I mean, there's CEOs of billion dollar companies now who were product managers at Jive back in the day, literally. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the overall vibe I get from it. It was a great learning experience. Um, it was the place where 
you know, there's a, there's always healthy friction between different departments. And, you know, we learned and that was the place where I think I learned the most in terms of legal. How do you actually be an accelerator for deals and, and process and, and the business rather than being the speed bump? Um, and so, you know, there were times when the CRO and I would, um, you know, get into real like yelling matches all the time, but then we would hug it out. Right. And so, you know, one time he actually almost got thrown out of a hotel because he was yelling so, so loudly at me on the phone. And then so the security came by and told him he had to be quiet. And so he comes back. He's like, hold on. So he comes back and he's like, that was security. And so then he starts whisper yelling at me uh, the whole time, which is pretty funny. Uh, so anybody who knows this guy, John McCracken, you, you, you love the guy. He's amazing. Um, but. You know, so the stories from there were a lot of like we're all in the boat together, and this is what the the CEO who took over for Dave, uh, you know, the the way he approached it was, look, you've gotten through the interview process, which means you're capable in whatever your skill set is, right? So I I know you can do the legal, but my question is, are you in the boat with us? And by that, what I mean is, you know, we're all we're a startup. You know, at the time, Jive was still a startup. We were going against IBM and and uh, and and Microsoft and you know, we're all in the boat, rowboat together and we're all rowing, trying to take the island and everybody has their own weapon. But now the person next to you gets taken out. And now, you know, you're now rowing for two people. And, you know, can you kind of leave your ego at the door, but bring your soul and bring your energy? And uh, so that's, that's what I remember a lot about that time. Wow, that's really cool. Really cool. And I, I, I think about that too, in terms of some of the, the organizations I've been a part of where you, then you, you reflect on it, like, where are they now? And it's so cool to see those, you know, those types of force multipliers in different industries that really help to, um, you know, change many landscapes, but kind of where are they now? Stories are pretty exciting. And it sounds like there's plenty For of sure. those with Jive. For sure. Very mm -hmm. cool. Very cool. So, uh, how did, how did, the transition away from Jive into Acton look. Was yeah. that kind of the next step? Yeah, well, there's an there's an intermediate step there at JAMA Software. Um, so basically at Jive, I ran the legal department, and then I just kept – one of the things I always do is just want to learn and do more and how can I grow kind of what I'm doing. I don't – I don't. I'm not a very good uh, you know, creature of comfort uh, type of person. And so for me, it was – a jive was like, well, how can I get involved in more than just legal? So eventually I ended up taking over corporate development, which was M&A. So we did a bunch of M&A transactions. We had to integrate those companies into the into Jive. And then I took over business development and ecosystem, which then helped me partner with the product team. And so it was always kind of just how do I make the concentric circle of my kind of expertise and knowledge get bigger? Um, and so I left Jive after about four years. Uh, there was it was kind of a transition time. The CEO had left that hired me. I decided to leave. I went over to JAMA, where a good friend of mine was was uh, Eric Winquist was the CEO. Um, got there, spent a year there. Um, was running legal, but then also helped run the sales department for a little bit, oh. um, just because I was helping with deals so much, and they had had a transition, so I kind of stepped in and did that. And then the opportunity of Acton came on, and came up, and I, I took that role. And initially, it was um, uh, you know VP of legal and biz dev, and so I was doing a bunch of partnerships and the like. In 2018, Acton, we went on, we underwent a um, pretty big restructuring in the business, and that's when I stepped into the COO role. And so I uh, stayed in that role for, uh, what, four and a half years um, where you know, I was responsible at various times for the product organization, uh, engineering, customer success, help you know, with marketing for a while. So that was kind of my foray into kind of the broader scope of a, you know, 
multi, multi-million dollar uh, SaaS business. Right. Yeah. I think that's where I first met you was at a, an event that, that Ryan hosted at Eroy and, and uh, you guys were, you were in it and it was really exciting to, to see that organization as well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, so, um, and then I guess more recently you re you re uh, you teamed up again with with Dave uh, Hirsch down in in Silicon Valley again. Is that right? Mobilize. Yeah, it's kind of a. Um, I think our HQ was down in down in the Bay Area, but kind of one of the you know we were remote first even before the pandemic. Uh, and so the uh, so Mobilize. So I was at Acton for a while, and then again, I for me, I just I can't stay too long in one place doing the same thing. And so I was just I was ready for something new. Left on really good terms, still close with the Acton team. Um, and at the time, Dave uh, Dave has sort of a private uh, his own little kind of private equity fund that he's you know one of the things he's focused on is trying to restart startups. Basically, take startups that have had you know a good. Uh, you know, maybe good product market fit or maybe a good product fit, but maybe that didn't really execute well on the go to market. And how do you actually take something that the world could still use and kind of take maybe re, re, uh, redo a capitalization, recap the company, uh, maybe take out the VCs who kind of, you know, pushed you to kind of grow at this breakneck piece, pace and just get it back and re, retrench it into a profitable business. So he's done that with a few companies. Uh, and one of the ones that he asked, the, the company he asked me to help with was a company called Mobilize, which is basically, it was um, communities, so external communities, uh, but focused primarily in the um, association and nonprofits space. And so um, he it was more of a project. He asked me to come on board and try to help him figure out what to do with it. He had been working in there, I think, for five or six years. And he was kind of, hey, I need some fresh eyes on this. And so came in there and um, spent about six months in there. And we decided that, hey, we either need to go raise a bunch of money or we need to find probably this. We need to find a different space, a, a different home for this. Um, maybe, you know, some part of roll up. And we were fortunate enough that we found a learning management company that was looking to pair the concept of learning management with kind of associations. So the idea being, hey, if you're, you know, if you're you're part of the National Realtors Association and you want to grow in your career, you not only have this learning management system that can help you with certifications and trainings and know-how, but then you also have this community wrapper around it where you can actually collaborate with people that you've um, gone either gone through these courses with or your other cohorts. And so we sold that business in 2023, in May of 2023, um, to, to, to a company called Forge, which has now kind of wrapped it in as, as part of their overall offering. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm sure he was glad to have you on the on the in the network that he could pull in to to give it some fresh perspective and and help find the way. Yeah, it was a it was a good you know Dave's my best friend. He was uh, best man at my wedding, uh, so you know it was the opportunity for us to work together again. It was uh, it was a good short but 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 meaningful uh, time for both of us. Right on. And so now you're what maybe a year into macro law. Is that about right? Yeah, we so so what happened was we knew we were going to sell mobilized about this time, you know, January of 2023. Uh, and so then I was started thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And I started thinking about things a little bit differently. My whole career, I had been kind of like, hey, what's next? And how can, you know, this time I was like, let's take a pause and step back. And I knew at the end of 2023, uh, um, I was turning 50. And I was like, okay, so rather than think about what's next, like, how do I want the next 10 years of my life to look? Right. Let's reverse engineer. Where do I want to be in 10 years? And let's reverse engineer back from that. 
so that was one thought. The other thought was like being inside of the, and this is really the big genesis of macro was like two things. One is I loved growing my own business with Alto. Like I love, I love practicing law, but I really love the business of building the business around the services, kind of like you guys are doing at Cascade. And so the idea was like, how can I get back to that? And the question was, okay, that was 2004, 2005 when I started um, Alto. If I was going to go start it today in 2023, what would I do differently? And it's and it's not only like, well, what's changed in the legal space, but I had also had all of this, you know, 10 plus years of experience inside the tech companies. And I'll tell you like, yeah, there's, sure, there's bloat inside of tech companies. But if you look at particular departments, like if you look at engineering teams, high functioning engineering teams and high functioning customer support teams, they're pretty lean. Right. And so how do they punch above their weight all the time? It's a combination of, you know, you got to have really good people for sure. But then there's also there's process, automation and technology. Right. And so uh, I started thinking, well, like I would watch, you know, our engineering teams work on a project, you know, would get prioritized, they'd work on it, something else would come through and they'd reprioritize and shift everything around. And it was kind of this, it was a little bit of like, you know, the duck on the lake where like, you don't really see what's going on under the water. There's about, there's a lot of chaos, yeah. but the reality is, you know, they don't, people don't always get it right. But for the most part, there's defined processes that work and that's why people follow them. And so I started thinking, well, why can't a law firm operate that way? Right? Like, why can't, what's the difference between, you know, a support ticket and a, and a contract red line, right? And why are lawyers doing customer success work inside of law firms? Why are lawyers being account managers? Like, why do you have a whole bunch of admins who are doing things that, you know, you can automate on the back end, right, through, through tooling? And so I'd had this idea in my mind that that was my pre, uh, pet project during, during the pandemic was building out this concept of a new law firm. And then when I knew Mobilize was going to sell, I started like, okay, that's what I want to go do. And so I reached out to a woman named Bonnie Page, uh, who's been in, she's been in Portland for a long time. She's been GCs of a bunch of Smarsh and Brand Live and a bunch of other companies. And I reached out to her. Um, she had had her own kind of firm at the time and I'd always gotten along with her. And people who worked with both of us were like, you guys should work together. So I approached her about this time last year and she was like, yeah, let's do it. And so that kind of kicked it all off. And so while we were selling Mobilize, we were kind of in the big beginning stages of thinking about launching Macro. And so we launched it officially in June of 2023. Very cool. And and so as you've attempted to integrate some of this automation and and intelligence technology, what are some of the 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 elements that you look at and say, man, that's that's working better than I thought it would? And and what are some other areas where maybe it's it hasn't worked quite worked out as you might have hoped. Yeah. So our initial idea was well, our one of our philosophies was like this is right when ChatGPT had just blown up and everyone was talking about generative AI and hey everybody's going to be out of a job soon and like and you know we're definitely not the first people to say this but we believe this like the robots are not going to replace the lawyers anytime soon but the lawyers who know how to harness and use the robots are going to replace those that don't. Right. That's and I still believe that to be true. So we said, well, let's build a law firm where we can leverage technology to do the work as much as possible. So we're not doing it. So we spent a ton of time, I would say the first three or four months, we actually hired an, an AI engineer for a while as a consultant. Um, and so what we were trying to do was trying to find AI tools, generative AI tools that could do 
the work that a lawyer would would typically do. And I'll give you an example. So we have a lot of clients who are you know SaaS businesses or services companies or software companies that have their form agreement. And then, uh, you know, they send it off and they're sending it, selling to a big enterprise company. And the enterprise company says, hey, we like we saw, we got your email with your, you know, your five page you know, agreement. That's really cute. Like, here's our 65 page procurement agreement. Right. And so then the startup gets it and they got to send it through the lawyer. And then it takes six hours, seven hours to redline it. And then you do some back and forth internally. You send it over. And our th- thought is, well, like, eventually, if you have a form agreement and a playbook, with fallback clauses and some rules, some rules governing kind of if then, then when that, you know, read, when that uh, procurement document comes in, the robot should be able to do the first pass on that, right? Wow. And then say, recommend, here's a recommended red line for you. And then the, the lawyers or the contracts people or the paralegals are doing the QA on it. So that's what we really wanted to do. And there's a bunch of products out there that are starting to do that. But what we realized pretty quickly was it's not, it's like a lot of the generative stuff. It's not there yet. Right. Like it'll get there and you can kind of see promises of it. But we weren't comfortable enough where we were like, okay, that we can put that into production. And so, uh, and funny story, one of the vendors um, told us, yeah, you know, we're about 85% accurate. And it's like, dude, we're law. Like (laughs) you can't be, you can't be 85% accurate. And, you know, the funny thing is like the first time they ran a red line, it would be 85% accurate. The second time it was about 85% accurate, but it was different accuracies and different you know, clauses and, 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 you know, different risk, risk um, tolerances and the like. So we kind of push pause on lever and diving deep into that. And instead what we've been doing on the contract review side is um, using paralegals and sort of non-lawyers who are frankly more cost-effective to do the same thing that we want the AI to do in the future. So we're, we build out playbooks, we go into a client, we ask them for their form agreements. We build out like, how far are you willing to go on this clause? What are the fallback clauses? And then we build a playbook that our team on the back end can actually uh, use to actually review and redline the contracts. And then we do the QA before it goes out. So the, the goal is for, for us to get um, that, uh, we get comfortable with that, our clients get comfortable with that, so that eventually when the technology can be there, the technology will just make all that a whole lot faster and a lot more efficient. And the nice thing about that is if you can really do that, and you can take that, you know, six-hour redline process that I talked to you about, that I mentioned earlier, turn it into fifteen minutes. Well, now the billable hour really makes no sense, right? So now you kind of go into the times up book and thinking about what's the now you start talking like a product company. What's the value to you, customer? What's the ROI you got out of this? Not how long did it take me, because that's that's irrelevant, right? What's the value to you on this? So that's one area that we've been kind of focused and playing a lot on. And then the other area is, um, you know, you don't need the generative AI stuff to automate internal processes and workflows. Again, if you think about like a ticketing system, if anybody you know has, has ever logged a support ticket with anybody, you get that automatic response that says, hey, you know, we got your support ticket, you know, your request for support, you're in the queue, you know, here's a little information. And then that goes into a workflow on the back end that then gets kind of assigned out to, to somebody to go work on. So what we're building is kind of the automation on the back end to be able to not only ingest kind of projects, but also do things like ingest clients. So for instance, uh, there will be a point in time pretty quickly here where, you know, if we're on a Zoom call together, there's there'll be special language in the invite that says potential client representation or something like that. 
when the Zoom call ends, I'll get a Slack notification that says, how'd the conversation go with Ben? Should we send an engagement letter? And I write back, yes, here's the detail. And I push, you know, enter on this on Slack. That kicks off a whole workflow that sends you an engagement letter, captures all of the data I need for the CRM, captures all the ACH and billing information I need. That comes all the way back around, populates everything in our system, creates all the files automatically. And then the nice thing about that is I don't have to hire admins to go do that. And what we, what we tell clients is when you're hiring that lawyer and they're telling you they're 900, 700, 1200 bucks an hour, it's not just them. They've got the whole team behind them that they have to pay for. So we can automate all of that. We can also keep the per hour rate a lot lower than it otherwise would be. So those are two areas that we're looking at now. We hired a firm that's building, kind of customizing all this on the back end for us on top of Airtable, which has been, which has been really good so far. Okay. Okay. Well, that's slick. That's, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the update because I remember the, when we first started talking, I believe last summer, um, you were discussing a lot of that stuff, but, but we run into similar things where it's like, how do we plug AI into our business in yeah. a meaningful way, right? Not just feeding the hype machine and, and it's totally. kind of junk, but, but where, where can we add a real value? And that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, and you know, we've been at this now for, I guess, 23 years with Cascade and another three and a half year prior to that. And it's like, man, I, we don't plan on going anywhere. And, and so we're not interested in just that meteoric rise and then we're going to, you know, get sold or acquired or whatever. So we don't want to just, you know, succumb to the desire to chase the money when there's not the, the value proposition, but similar, similar steps along the way for sure. Right. Well, that's where, I mean, one thing I would tell people is people to your point around the hype cycle around AI I wouldn't get too worried around that. I would start playing with stuff, even if your own personal life. I think the bigger things that are available today that people aren't taking enough advantage of are just the automations and the integrations. So, you know, your ability to kind of connect up different systems and workflows and how do you get data from over here into over here without doing the manual cut and paste. A lot of that is available today. It's not available in every system and every use case, but a lot of stuff is available today to actually just make your day-to-day -day life on the back end easier, even if your clients aren't seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm diving in as much, but I know uh, Simon's got himself a new uh, chat GPT intern. What's his name again? Steve. Steve. Yep. So, so Simon's got Steve and of course our, our tech team, they're, they're using all sorts of different ways. Uh, and we're looking at, at ways of integrating into our content management system, but even thinking about like, uh, you know, um, trans translation technology, right? So instead of paying someone to take a, a body of text and then, and then translate it into another language and then go back and, and, and QA edit that instead, we're like, man, if we could get IA to AI to, to translate it. And then you simply have the person go through and make sure that all those translations make sense technically, et cetera. Like those are really meaningful steps forward that I think, again, it's a different conversation on that value proposition than just, you know, trading hours for dollars. Totally. Um, so it's, it's an exciting realm. Well, that's cool to hear you're uh, disrupting that realm as, as much as you are and finding some traction there. Um, and then of course you got, you're never, never satisfied, uh, is the theme here. You got this little, I don't know if I'd call it a side hustle. What would you, what would you call your, uh, your franchise ownership with, uh, with the restore hyper wellness? What's going on there? Yeah. So I, uh, I was an athlete growing up and, you know, like a lot of people, as you get older, your body just starts to break down. So I, during the, during the pandemic, I developed, uh, arthritis in my lower back and it just prevented me from doing a lot of things and I'm pretty active. So I tried everything. Tried, I went orthopedic, one of the trailblazers, orthopedic surgeons, I, you know, physical therapy, chiropractor, all that stuff. Some of it was a little bit helpful, but none of it truly worked. 
a friend of our friend of mine had been going to this um, this franchise restore, uh, doing cryotherapy and red light therapy for a while, and she's like, "You got to try this." So eventually, I tried it, and literally, like day one, my back was like, "Hey, this is actually pretty good." So I started going religiously. And, um, you know, the cryotherapy is basically like standing in a phone booth, not too different than why I'm here. And, you know, it's basically cold plunge, but with air. So they drop down the temperature, depending on the machine, 220 degrees below zero. You're wearing gloves and hats and, and boots, and you're in there somewhere for between, you know, one to three minutes. So I just started doing that, and it really worked. And then I was, my buddy and I were, my business partner and I were trying to think about, we were trying to buy a business. Um, during the pandemic, we looked at like little startups and looked at Amazon businesses. And then when I started going to restore, I was like, hey, there's something here. I totally believe in this. He started going. He started believing, uh, buying into it. And so we started talking to restore about franchise opportunities. And so we we own four territories, most of them in central Oregon, one in Washington. And uh, we signed the lease, uh, signed the loan documents on Friday oh, wow. to open our first store in Eugene in May, which is going to be really exciting. And so Restore Hyper Wellness is the name. It is a combination. It's kind of kind of three big, great big picture modalities, but it's about health and longevity and, and wellness. And so there's, you know, core services, like I said, like there's hyperbaric chamber, there's red light therapy, uh, cryotherapy, infrared sauna. There's sort of nurse practitioner services. So think of IM shots, IV drips, um, and the like. And then there's esthetician services for things like hydrofacials and cryofacials and cryoslimming. And so this is just a, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a way to think proactively about your health and be, you know, to try to be healthy and having it all under one roof. A lot of places will have, hey, we have a cold plunge, but to be able to do multiple modalities under one roof in one setting was pretty appealing to us. Interesting. Very cool. And so um, is Portland one of the, the regions that you have um, rights to? Portland, no, Portland's owned by uh, another guy uh, that we who we're friends with. Um, so you basically as you know, if anybody buys a franchise, you, you kind of buy the territories. Got it. So we bought the we bought Bend, Oregon, uh, Bend, Eugene, Salem and Tri-Cities, Washington. And Eugene just happened to pop up as a spot with um, one, uh, um, a massive opportunity in terms of, you know, very healthy lifestyle, not a lot of competition for this there now. Um, and we actually found a great location to go into with a really good partner as a landlord. So that's why we picked Eugene first. Got it. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. You know, Trek Town USA, lots of people running and being active. So, totally, totally. man, that's cool. Yeah. I look forward to hearing more about that and maybe even checking it out myself because I can relate to some of those ailments. Yeah, well, we'll have you down for the, we'll do a grant, we do a big, big grand opening in May. Uh, right before the NCAA track and field championships down there. So we'll make sure we invite you down. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, Bill, it's uh, like I said, I think uh, we didn't push record yet, but you were asking about kind of the lens we look at. Like, I think ultimately for me and in, in, in reverse for Ben, uh, getting to know uh, partners, uh, friends, clients, um, and your whole perspective on uh, what I'm going to call work and your fulfillment and what you do is super intriguing. Um, there is a uh, kind of this this model that Ben and I have been tracking when it comes to creative directors within agencies that get hired and then they job hop, right? I don't sense mm -hmm. that from you, even though we just talked about how like, shoot, you went from here to here to here. You said these keywords of like, I left it and we had good relationships. I'm still friends with those. I think that's one of the differentiators. But then two, 
that it's not that you get bored, but you really thrive on that startup that the whole, uh, what I look at is like, okay, there's these obstacles we have to overcome. So like complete problem solver is, is really what I see you doing. And then also the fact that you're going into this uh, restore hyper wellness, like at the tail end of the conversation you just had, like uh, you care about it. This is something you like. And so, so you're doing that. Uh, I think that's super intriguing. I love hearing that. What, what do you see then for your future? What do you see for the next five, 10 years? You mentioned your 10 year plan, if you will. Um, what do you see coming up for the next five, 10 years for yourself? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, one of the themes is, um, well, first of all, I totally agree with you on, and this is advice to anybody. I always tell people, everybody is worried about how they you know, enter into a new job, right? Like, what, what do I, I got to show up the right way. And I got to, you know, my fir first impressions matter. I would say last impressions matter too. So my advice to people is always, um, it's just as important how you leave an organization as to how you start it there. Um, because though you will run into those people in some, in some capacity. So that, I, mm -hmm. I agree with you, um, or at least the sentiment of, of, you know, making sure that you enter, you, you leave just to, on just as good of a note as, as you entered. Um, for me, I think, you know, the theme I want to continue is just growth and, and the journey, you know, for me, it's not about an end state. Um, you know, as an athlete, I think as you get older, like I'm never going to be as good as basketball as I used to be. I'm never going to be as good at most things, which is why I think people, a lot of people like golf because you can actually get better at it as you get older. So what are the other things in life that is actually a challenge to you as you get older? So, you know, for me, the next five to 10 years is just, I want to build this law firm. We want to build this differently. We want to, you know, be able to build this as to something that's truly kind of disruptive. But I also want to do it in a way where I can actually not just live my life through the lens of one thing, one passion. I think, um, you know, when you're younger, you can kind of tend to do that as you get older. I've got kids, I've got a wife, I've got, you know, another business. And so the question is, you know, how do you, how do you just make time for it all? Um, and so for me, the next five to 10 years are, what do I want the, you know, the age 60, what do I want to be? I'm starting to get a sense of that right now, but it's still a little early. But during that, it's like, what can I do along the way that I learn and grow? And that's that's the number one thing to me. So like an example is every year I try to pick up something new. So I just try to learn some new skill. So a few years ago it was swimming and I did my first triathlon, I hired a coach. Um, then it was, hey, I'm going to take up Spanish. So I've been taking Spanish lessons ever since. Um, then I wanted to play pool. I wanted to learn how to play pool well. So I picked up that. Um, this year it was going to be, hey, I want to learn how to play cards really well. But my wife challenged me to take up dance lessons with her. So I'm six foot four. I am not, I am like the gawky giraffe, but it's going to be fun to learn how to do this with her. So for the next 10, five to 10 years, I want it to be Yes, I want to make money. Yes, I want to be successful, but I want to enjoy it more than anything else because there's going to be a point in time where I can't do these things anymore. And that's the most important thing to me. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, Ben and I both uh, connect with that really well. I think that is definitely why we wake up every day uh, without dreading like, oh, it's just another day, right? Um, yeah. Well, maybe we sure. can, uh, we can go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. No, no, go ahead. Um, maybe then we can actually dive into some of what you were talking about, uh, personal, uh, passions. What, what are things outside of work? Uh, you talked about, uh, playing cards or, or this year dancing. What else are you, uh, between your family and community? What are you, uh, doing outside yeah. of the work? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be married to my best friend. So we have, we do a ton of adventures together, which is great. 
my kids are now 18 and a half and 16 and a half. And so they're fun, two boys. Um, and everyone says this, but it's true. Like just when they start getting cool and stop being super freaking annoying, like they're about to leave. So the next year, year and a half is going to be spending a lot of time with them uh, before they kind of, you know, ride off to their own kind of next journey. Um, my other passions outside of work are, you know, I try to stay, I tell everybody it's in everybody's best interest that I work out because if not, I get really cranky and, you know, I, it's better for me to take it out on my own body or on weights or, you know, a punching bag rather than, uh, you know, not be able to do that. So I try to be very cognizant of finding time to, to, to be active. Um, I'm a big, randomly, I was a history major in college. Uh, this was not a focus for me, but I've become really, really, really interested in Mesoamerican history. So everything from Mexico down to Guatemala, the Mayans, Zapotecs, the Aztecs, um, I've dived, dove deep into that over the past few years. And I just turned 50 in December and we did a trip. We hired an uh, anthropologist to take us around to Oaxaca and you know take us to some uh, ruins down there. That then led into I've become a big fan of Mexican food and Mexican cooking. So spent a lot of time making mole and different types of, you know, off the beaten path type of Mexican food. Um, and then every year, my buddies and I try to do a long hike. Uh, so a couple of years ago, we did the Enchantments, which is a 25 mile one way hike up in uh, uh, Washington state. Last year, we bit off almost more than we could chew. We did the Timberline Trail, which is the trail around Mount Hood. Um, the route we took, it was like 46 miles, and we ended up, we did that in one day. So it was a pretty long day. Um, but, you know, those those are things that I always like to be training and getting better at something. So if I have a goal, then it's easier for me to train for. So all that stuff keeps me out of out of trouble. Yeah, that Timberline Trail is a humbling trail indeed. Yeah, beautiful though. Oh. Beautiful. And did you start and end? Which way did you go? Uh, we started just before Timberline, and we went counterclockwise. Yep. Yeah, that's the way I've always gone to. It always feels like a, once you get up to Gnarl Ridge, you're kind of going downhill for like 25 miles to the Sandy, but then that last 10 miles and 3,300 feet sure is a kick in the teeth to finish the day. 100%, 100%. But the wow. Gnarl Ridge is, it is gnarly. It's yeah. it's well-named. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll have to join forces. I, I've got similar interests there in terms of taking lots of steps in one day. And I, I always found like, as much as I love the multi-day stuff, and I think there's desire to go further in that direction in the coming years and yeah. you know, mess around with light packs and the like. But um, a lot of it, too, is just, you know, with full schedules, like how much can you cram in from, you know, sunrise to sundown and maybe even encroach in some darkness to to uh, get some fun in. But I, and I also like the hiking piece because I feel like with my wife, a lot of my other activities have some risk. Uh, some real risk and the hiking, you know, obviously there's risk there, but it feels more manageable than, you know, traveling at high speeds on bikes or, you know, under power of a internal combustion engine. So that's cool. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I guess with that, you know, thinking about like the balance of all that, right. Do you have any insights or, or suggestions on how you, how have you, how have you sort of learned and perhaps gotten better at, at, at blending all of those things and feeling like there's, there's some measure of balance. I don't, <laughs> I have right? no advice for people on this. Like, and I think a lot of people who do have advice are it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> Pardon my French, but I think, uh, I think a lot of like, you just make it work, right? So you just got to prioritize and you just know, Hey, if I want to do all this stuff, I'm either, I'm, you know, 
I'm not going to have time to do spend time with my kids, or I'm not going to have time to sleep, or I'm not going to have time to do this. And so, um, for me, there, I don't. There's probably three days a year where I feel like everything's in perfect balance. And then, like now, like you know, you were talking like I've got the macro thing, I've got the restore thing. I actually have another kind of little small business I'm working on. And there's probably four times a month where I look at my wife and I'm like, "What am I doing? This is stupid!" Like I'm so frustrated. But I know like if bored me is way worse than like overstressed me because that that will pass over time. Um, so I don't have any good recommendations for people on this other than everybody's a snowflake on this and everybody is just wired differently. And if you start trying to march too much to somebody else's drum, maybe take in all the advice. That's great. But at the end of the day, you're the one who knows how you feel. Like, do you feel like getting up at five in the morning and going to work for work out at the gym? If you don't feel it, you're going to be able to do it for a while, but it's not sustainable. So you got to figure out like, hey, yeah, this works for me. And uh, what works for me probably doesn't work for everybody. And what works for me today probably won't work for me in three or four years. Right. Um, so right. I don't think there's any advice in there, just more empathy with for what everybody else is going through, which is, you know, there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's just life. You know, yeah. like you just you just figure it out because you have to embracing the messiness a little bit right totally totally yeah. that's right and there's there's no easy way through it you just yeah. gotta you just gotta get through it in one way or another and know that um it's not the fault of anybody around you most of the time we do this to ourselves and so you know I be, that's one thing i've learned is there's no benefit in taking any of this out on anybody else you're the one who did this to yourself so you know point it inward um and just get through it because it will get better everything will get better over time Indeed. Uh, that's great. That's great. Well, um, let's see, kind of coming to the end here, but, uh, and towards the end, we always kind of like to just, you know, hear if you've got any, any inspiration or advice that you can share. And one of those areas that's always, uh, pretty exciting is particular individuals who have greatly influenced or inspired your life philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first is probably my dad. So my dad was, uh, pretty blue collar guy grew growing up. And like I said, I was the first one to go to college in my family. And um, I had, uh, had the opportunity, I transferred law schools that I had mentioned. And um, uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to do it because my whole family at the time lived with like extended family all lived in like a 35 mile radius. So I had this opportunity to, to go work in California for this sports agent that they would eventually leave me to transfer to UCLA. And I had coffee with my dad one day and my dad was like, you know, do you know how many times I said in my life, what if, like, this is a, what if moment, like you got to go do it. And so he kind of set me on this journey, uh, but he's always brought a blue collar ethic to things, but also humor. Um, he's a um, pretty funny guy, which I tried to adopt as much as possible. Um, another person that sticks out in mind is my high school basketball coach. Cause again, he was just, he was the first person who I remember one practice Saturday morning, seven thirty, eight, eight o'clock, we were all kind of dragging. And he was like, I don't want to be here. Do you think I want to be here? But I'm here. We're, we got to be here. And if you're here, you show up and you do the work and you got to put pride in what you're doing. So for some reason, you know, you have these quotes in your life that kind of stick with you. And yeah. that's what that's one that has always stuck with me. And then my wife, Bree, is probably uh, more recently. So I got divorced in um, 2014, uh, remarried in 2020 right before the pandemic. Uh, and Bree's been a great emotionally um, inspiration for me of just kind of how do you bring soul to the world and everything doesn't have to be, you know, uh, zero sum game. Like how do you make everything kind of a win-win and how do you find the commonality in humans? Um, so that's been a pretty good learning experience later in life for me. What a cool compliment. Excellent. 
Excellent. Yeah. And I hear you on coaches. I hear on all three of those, but certainly coaches, I think I, they serve such a valuable role in my life. And I'm 28 years in the, in the coaching ranks, trying to pay it forward in some measure. Awesome. Um, but those, those, uh, those individuals, those key times in life, and it's so much bigger than the, you know, blocking and tackling type stuff. It's, it's those bigger life elements that, that really resonate and, and hold weight over time. And one thing I would say to that is like, I, once in a while I go back, I just send my high school basketball coach a note used to be a written letter. Now it's an email or now it's a, you know, Facebook message and just kind of thank them for what they did. So that's one piece. Like people don't know the impact that they have on your life unless you tell them. And there's people I'm sure all of us have run into 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. And it's really nice to be on the other end of those things to know that you made a difference longer term. 100%. 100%. You know, that was one of the best things if I reflect on social media is that I got to reconnect with these coaches that I hadn't been in touch with and just like, how are you, man? Or, you know, females that were amazing coaches and just the opportunity to just like make them uncomfortable by letting them know you had a huge impact. And, and it's been really phenomenal to get, to see those responses. And I certainly love receiving them as, as these athletes have gone on and come back and I see them and whether it's high fives and hugs at the resort or, you know, um, otherwise hearing from them, getting invited to, you know, key, um, experiences in their lives, graduations, weddings, et cetera, like that, that's huge. But I think communicating that is key. And, and those folks that make those contributions, man, that's far better than whatever else they hope to gain from their experience investing in other people. And that can be a that can be a coach, that can be a teacher, that can be, you know, a counselor, you know, Boy Scout, Girl Scouts, like whoever those people are in your life that help shape you and get you to where you are. One, to what you're doing. So kudos on you for paying it forward, but also pay it back and go sure. go thank them. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because that's one thing I've noticed is some of my ski coaches, you know, they were they were just really struggling to stay in the game in skiing. It's obviously very expensive and, and maybe life didn't um, have as much other sort of upside, but to, to come along and, and share that with them. I and mean, one, of, one of these really meaningful coaches of mine, I ended up seeing him and he was renting uh, tools at this tool rental place in Portland. And, and it's like the last place I would have expected to see him, but it's just like, dude, none of that matters. Yeah. You you made huge huge investments in my life. I'm happy to see you and and catch up and and you know those are those are great opportunities for sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see. Any advice you would offer to individuals interested in going to law school or starting their own business? Yeah, the law is an interesting. It's going to be interesting over the next few years because I do think as AI comes along, is it is going to change, disrupt law, regardless of you know what the success of my firm. But over time, these. Um, these tools are going to automate a lot of the sort of day-to-day, like lower level tasks that frankly, people who are starting off um, uh, their careers are, are doing today manually. I think my advice will be, would be if go to the biggest, most expansive law firm you can to start, if you mm-hmm. have the opportunity to, yeah. uh, because one thing those places do that none of the rest of us can do is train. They train extremely well. Um, and the knowledge you'll pick up there, it's, you know, maybe, you know, it may be rough. It may be kind of soul, you know, soul sucking, and it may be kind of not the, 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 the most rewarding thing you'll ever do, but man, that training you get those first few years, um, it's really hard to replicate. And then once you have that experience, you can decide, do I want to stick it out here? Do I want to go in-house? Do I want to go start my own thing? Do I want to go to a small boutique? So it's always easier to go from the big probably true in every services business, right? It's big. It's easier to get start at the McKinsey's of the world and then kind of go to somewhere else. Um, same, same in law. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, and then, you know, 
let make sure that you're thinking about how technology is going to be disrupting this because I truly think that the people who are coming into law school today are going to be teaching the rest of us the stuff that we just don't haven't figured out yet. And hey, here's this piece of technology that wasn't built for a law firm, but we could leverage it this this way. And I think, you know, the younger generations, it's true, they're always going to be more technologically advanced than than, you know, than us. And the, if you're able to kind of show up with one, working hard, two, the experience of being in a big law firm, and three, kind of this, hey, let me show you how to leverage the tool sets that we're not currently leveraging. I think that's going to be uh, really valuable in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of those things that uh, I've reflected on many times when people have asked me, how do I start my own business? And, and it's like, boy, maybe go to work for someone else, learn on their dime, uh, figure out a lot of that stuff and how things get done. Um, but, uh, but certainly the, the idea of asking for help, reading, you know, trying to find that network that can educate you, whether that's your boss or, uh, or if you are self-employed to go out there and find other fellow travelers that have been there, done that. Cause there is a ton to learn and trying to figure that out in a vacuum is, is pretty futile. Yeah. That's, cool. that, that, that would be my advice to any people, anybody who's starting a business generally is be humble you know, there's no such thing as stupid questions. Ask, you know, there's a tribe, there's some type of tribe around you in some way, leverage those people because everybody has been in your seat. Like nobody had it figured out to start. Uh, the people who do the best are the ones who admit that right away as fast as possible and are a sponge for everybody else around them. And then figure out based on all these things, people are telling me, here's what I think I should go do. Um, so if you're starting something, be humble, be inquisitive, know that you're going to get it wrong more times than you get it right, particularly to start. And then also kind of know when to quit and whether that quit, whether that quitting means, you know, pivoting the business or maybe, Hey, you know what? I tried this. It's okay. It didn't work. Um, I'm going to go try something else, or I'm going to go back into the corporate world for a while until I figure it out. All that's okay. It's all part of the journey. There's no bad, there's no wrong decisions on those things. Yeah, I like that. It feels very stoic or Buddhist in the sense that it's not right or wrong. And I also have, um, I think my wife turned me on to this podcast that was by um, Abby Wambach's uh, wife, who was talking about quitting and how it had this really negative connotation in, in American society today. But that if but the the origin of the word, the what is that etymology of that word is is much more about freeing yourself up for the next thing. And if you're not making space for that next thing, you know how are you going? How are you going to move beyond certain you know impasses? So I think that's I like that. that's really strong. Really strong. Yeah, well, I think that's a great, great point to end on, Bill. I again, I, I really appreciate this time. I know for myself, we've had a uh, quite a few interactions over the last year. I can certainly uh, let you know, Bill is uh, not only does he do good work, but he's very efficient with that. He'll, he'll say, you know, set expectations and then always uh, come back usually later that evening and, and have some work to review. And I've really appreciated that in providing the service that you provide and, and just getting a chance to to know you better and find some other fun things for us to to discuss and. Uh, perhaps see how many steps we can figure out in a day uh, sometime in the future. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. And I'll turn it back on you and say, you know, you've worked with a lot. I've worked with a lot of companies over the years and, you know, it's always about the partnership. And so, you know, uh, there's there's times when you and I kind of push back on each other on a particular topic and that's the way it should be. And at the end, you know, um, we, we reach agreement on something and we kind of move forward. And so uh, I appreciate the business partnership on your end as well. Well, thank you very much, Bill. All righty. Thank you, Bill, for your time and, and uh, joining us. And if anyone has any questions, please reach out webwell at cascadewebdev.com. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, any future questions or topics, uh, please send it there. Uh, again, thank you. 
Yeah, and I would just say finally, Bill, why don't you let us know if people are interested in learning more about uh, your various um, ventures? Where can they find you? So I'm on LinkedIn, Bill Pierznik, uh, P-I-E-R-Z-N-I-K. Um, Macro Law, M-A-C-R-O-L-G. So L-G stands for law group. MacroLG.com is the law firm. And then Restore.com is Restore Hyper Wellness. So that'll take you to the franchisor page. And then you can, from there, you can navigate to our location in Eugene, which will be open in May. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again. Until right. next time, everybody. Thanks,